Good morning. Our passage this morning comes from Mark 11. So if you'd like to turn there in that blue book in front of you, that's a pew Bible. Or if you've got your own Bible, you can open up to it. It's found on page 847. We're going to read verses 1 through 25, but really going to focus on, uh, on 12 through 25. This is the passage that uh, we uh, understand Palm Sunday to be coming from. This is Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Mark chapter 11, verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to him, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the ground, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, He went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the city, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us as we come to God's word together. Father, we ask now that the words of my mouth and that the meditations of all of our hearts together would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Show forth Jesus this morning. 
that he would be the one that we adore, that we love, that we trust in, the one that we follow, the one that we desire above all else. Do that for us by the power of your spirit. Amen. Well, as Darwin mentioned, uh, Palm Sunday is really a Sunday that highlights the fact that people are a walking mass of contradictions, right? So you have everybody so excited that Jesus is coming into the city of Jerusalem. They welcome him as a king, as we'll see in a moment here. And it's not five days later that he is then crucified, where the crowd is crying out, his blood be upon us and our children. It's a pretty quick turnaround, right? And of course, that's pretty true of us in general, that we ourselves are a walking mass of contradictions. And we see this all over our lives. They're kind of these surface level things that that are not such a big deal when it comes to things like diet and exercise. Yeah, I'm going there. Where we believe that on the one hand, eating healthy is a good thing, right? We feel better when we do. We live longer. It's a good thing. But then we still do things like go to Rodeo Goat and eat a half-pound burger for ourselves and then start working our way through what's left on our children's plates. We all do that, right? Everybody? And then maybe in a more serious way, there's a part of all of us who longs to be in genuine relationships and friendships with other people, where, where people actually know who we are, the good and the bad, and who love us for who we are. But at the same time, we are scared to death of that happening. And so we get in this pattern of kind of wanting that, but then keeping people at arm's length as well. And so we have this contradiction at work in us. And of course, this happens all the time in our life with God. Uh, Paul Tripp, who is a pastor and a counselor, uh, writes of this time in his life where he almost destroyed his ministry and his marriage. And that's how he describes it. He says that there was this huge disconnect between his private persona, who he was with his wife and his kids, and then who he was in his public life. He was this irritable and impatient man at home, but then he was the most gracious and patient pastor publicly. And he says that there was a time where he was having this conversation with his wife, Luella, where all this came to a head, and he said this, "'On one occasion, as Luella was confronting me with yet another instance of my anger,' I got on a roll and actually said these deeply humble words. 95% of the women in our church would love to be married to a man like me. And her response, well, count me in the 5%. (laughs) Maybe that hits a little close to home, too. Yeah, so ultimately, what what Tripp says and what the rest of his book is about is that he, he says this is ultimately a worship problem. Of course, he would profess to believe that, it, that the object of his worship is Jesus, that his identity is found in Jesus, but what his life actually showed that he was worshiping was his own reputation. And so when anything threatened that control of his reputation, if he didn't appear to be this gracious, loving, patient pastor, he got upset about it. And of course, that happens to us all the time. We say, believe, and do certain things, even here on a Sunday morning, and it's not five minutes after we leave when we're cutting it, getting out of the parking lot and somebody cuts us off and we are raging at them. Or we lose it with our roommate when we get home. Or with our children in the car on the way to lunch. Or it could even be that, that you're leaving Bible study on a Wednesday night and within an hour of being home, you're back in front of the computer looking at something you don't want to be looking at. We are this walking mass of contradictions. And what's happened in all of these circumstances 
is that there's a disconnect between what we say we worship and believe with what we actually worship and believe. And and whether you you actually or functionally uh, acknowledge what it is that you're worshiping, uh, it's true whether we acknowledge it or not. And so for most of us, there's this ongoing, constant struggle between those things. And that's exactly what's happened for Israel too, but it's on a much, much greater scale and things have gotten really, really bad by this point. What had happened to them is that they had lost sight of what it meant to be in a relationship with the one true God. So this worship at the temple, which was a huge deal, it was the center of their life together, had really become a shadow of what it was supposed to be and what it was intending to point towards. And so what they said they worshipped didn't line up with what they actually worshipped. And so we could really summarize it this way. They had begun to trust in the symbols of their life with God rather than the substance of their life with God. They were trusting in the symbols rather than in the substance. And that is why Jesus comes on the scene and brings these really strong words, words that make us probably a little uncomfortable, against the temple and against Israel. So what does he do? What does Jesus do? In this passage, he comes to restore their and our worship to God to what it should be. And so that's what I want us to see this morning for us in this passage, is that Jesus alone restores our worship of God. He alone can do this. He's the only one who can bring into alignment our professed beliefs and our functional beliefs. He's the only way that those two can actually become one. So how does he do this? Well, sticking with the theme that we've had these last couple weeks, we get more warning and more judgment this week. Uh, but, but he does this in three ways. He gives us three warnings. So if you're taking notes, you can jot these down. Jesus restores our worship of God first by warning us of the danger of worship without fruitfulness. Warning us against worship without fruitfulness. Secondly, by warning us of the danger of worship without mission. And finally, warning us of the danger of worship without Jesus. So first, he, he warns us of this danger of worship without fruitfulness. So let me set the scene. As we said, churches around the world this morning are celebrating Palm Sunday, which is what we read about in this passage at the beginning of Mark 11. And the main message of Palm Sunday is this. The humble king has arrived. He is here. All of this passage is dripping with this royal language. And so he comes into Jerusalem just like a conquering king would. And he's received as a king where people are throwing down their cloaks in front of them, they're waving these palm branches, and then they're shouting out with these words from Psalm 118, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. So the king has come, that's the point. And the question in everyone's mind, and it would have been your question too if you'd been there that that morning, is this the king that we've been waiting for? Is this the moment that we've been waiting for? Is this what we've been longing for for all these years? Is he finally here to overthrow the Romans and to put us back in the place we're supposed to be? And so as he comes into the city in accord with Malachi 3, he goes right to the temple. This is what a king would do. And they are hoping that this is the moment that they've been waiting for. And that, of course, is when things get a little weird. But before we get there, 
Let me give you a quick word on the temple. Um, it, it's really hard for us to understand how big of a deal the temple was. Like when I say temple, you probably think, oh yeah, it's kind of like the church building, right? It's where they go to worship. It's great. It was way bigger than that for the Israelites. This was the center of their life with God. It was the place where God uniquely dwelled. His presence was there in a way that it wasn't anywhere else. It was the place where they believed that heaven and earth actually intersected. You could go to that place. That was where heaven and earth was intersecting. And it was also the symbol of national hope. When worship in the temple was right, when it was what it was supposed to be, Israel's place in the world was right. So this place is supercharged with significance for them, and it's packed with people at this point making sacrifices for sin because it's the Passover celebration. So everybody's there, center of the life of Israel is happening in this moment, and again, things get weird for us. So look back at verse 12. They're leaving Bethany, Jesus is hungry, and then look at verse 13. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. So why not? What's the problem here? Why why aren't there figs? Mark says it's because it's not the season for figs. Pretty understandable, right? Jesus' response, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And in the words of Ron Burgundy, well, that escalated quickly. Uh, What's happening here? We see that in verse 20 and 21, after this incident in the temple, that this is exactly what happens. This tree withers and dies. And a lot of people in the commentaries are really uncomfortable with this passage because they don't really know how to make sense of it. And Jesus seems like he's just kind of gone over the top. Like that was a whole lot uh, to do just because the tree that's not supposed to be budding isn't budding, right? So what's going on here? What's actually happening is that this is what many have called an act of symbolic judgment against Israel. Jesus is judging Israel. The prophets had referred to Israel as a fig tree, and the expectation was that they would be bearing fruit. That was the expectation of Israel. They would bear fruit as God's people. And so like a tree who has these full leaves should be bearing fruit at that time, Israel was to be bearing fruit in their relationship with God. They were to be loving Him and serving Him and obeying Him. And of course, we know the story of the Old Testament and then of Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees in particular in the New Testament. The problem is that they aren't bearing fruit. At this point, they've lost sight of who they are as God's people and what they're to be doing. And so the fruit of being God's covenant people is not there. It's not showing forth. Rather than worshiping as they're supposed to, they've fallen into idolatry. And rather than seeing transformed lives, they were, they were people that Jesus could describe as those who would clean the outside of the cup while the inside is still filthy. And this is why Jesus can say in Mark 7, quoting Isaiah actually, that this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. He says, in vain do they worship me. That is the problem. And what's happened over time is that Israel began trusting in these symbols of worship rather than in the substance of that covenant with God. And if you look down to verse 17, after Jesus quotes Isaiah, he quotes Jeremiah 7, and this is instructive for us as well. He calls the temple a den of robbers, and we'll look more at this in a moment. 
But that word for robber right there isn't pointing narrowly just to somebody who steals stuff. It's more broadly a term that would be used of a criminal. And so what what, uh, Jesus is saying here, and this idea based on Jeremiah 7, is that they had begun to think that they could live however they wanted, even committing crimes, and then come back to the temple and hide out there, and that they were going to be just fine because they were participating in temple worship. Everything's fine as long as I'm still a part of the temple worship. And so what had happened is that there was this huge disconnect between worship and life. That's the problem. They're not bearing fruit as they're supposed to. And what happened is that they began trusting in this mere religious activity. As long as we're keeping these dietary laws, as long as we're worshiping in the temple, we're going to be okay. Now, of course, that's not hard to see how that applies to us. I mean, we can, we can just as easily fall into trusting in to religious activity rather than trusting in Jesus. This is what's common to all of us, and it takes two forms. The first is an immoral form, or what I'll call an immoral form. And this is maybe what you think first of. You think, as long as I'm going to church, as long as I'm participating in Bible study, as long as maybe I'm just reading my Bible, then it really doesn't matter that much what I do. This is kind of my my get-out-of-jail-free card. And so I'm going to just pick and choose the parts of the Bible that I want to obey and then forget the rest. And the more kind of dressed-up theological version of this is to say that I can use grace as a justification for my flagrant disobedience because God's going to forgive me anyway. That's what Jesus died for, right? And so we dress up our flagrant disobedience with theological language. I actually knew of a person who was entrenched in, adul- in adultery. And the way that he talked about this was saying that he was just going to let his wife divorce him so that he could marry this other person that he was having an affair with because Jesus is going to forgive me anyway. That's a picture of this immoral form. We pick and choose what we want and we try and slap Jesus' grace onto our disobedience and to justify our own behavior. And so what happens is that Jesus becomes your get out of hell free card and nothing more and it shows that in the end he's really not your king. You've not really submitted to the king if that is your attitude. And so this comes as a stark warning to us as well that if we are trusting in religious activity rather than in Jesus we are in a really really dangerous place. So that's the immoral form but there's also a moral form of this. It's where you become so enslaved to your obedience before God, you subtly begin to believe that God's opinion of you is based on how well you obey. And the result of this is pride or despair. You do well, you increase in pride because it's all about me. I'm doing it. You look down on other people. And then if you're one who fails a lot at it, you begin despairing because, again, it is all up to you. And in either way here, the problem is that we are missing Jesus. That is the ultimate danger. When worship doesn't result in fruitfulness, when there is a disconnect between worship and life, it begins to show that the object of your trust is in something other than Jesus. That is a really, really dangerous place to be. If that is you this morning, you need to hear the weight of this warning. Jesus graciously warns us of that this morning. He calls us to be fruitful in worship, not because we earn his favor, 
but because that's what it means to be united to him. It results in bearing fruit. So Israel had failed at this. The fig tree illustrates it, but their failure also shows in that they had lost sight of what temple worship was to be all about. And this is our second point. So Jesus, Jesus restores our worship to God by warning us of the danger of worship without mission. And this is what's happening in that middle section. So back to verse 15. He enters into the temple. He sees these money changers. He sees these, selling, these guys selling pigeons and these other animals for sacrifice. Once again, gets really, really angry really, really quickly. He drives out the buyers and the sellers. He flips over these tables. And again, we ask, what is the deal? Why is he so angry? Well, it's not because there's the, the, the selling of animals is taking place. That's not only permissible, it's necessary. You've you got to picture this. All of these people are traveling from afar for this Passover celebration. And nobody's bringing animals with them because of the danger that goes with that. And sometimes when they arrive, the animals aren't in a condition anymore to be offered to God as sacrifice. They've lost their perfection that they needed. And so you had to purchase your animals when you get to the temple. And you had to pay this temple tax. So you need these money changers as well. So it's not because they were selling things that Jesus is upset here. What is it then? The problem is with the location of these sales. It's with the location of these sales. Originally, these tables and these booths would have been on the Mount of Olives, which is across the valley. So it would have been further away from the temple, outside of where they are. But now, what's happening in the temple into which Jesus walks is that they're in the outer court of the temple, which is where the Gentiles were to be. It was the Gentile courts. It was the furthest in that the Gentiles could get. Now, picture this. During the week of Passover, some say that as many as 255,000 lambs were purchased and sacrificed. And there are other animals there too, okay? Now, imagine how loud that many animals would be, okay? Or if you have three boys under the age of nine at home, you probably don't have to imagine that. Think of how loud the animals would be and then this clang of money. Now try to picture worshiping and praying in that context. It would have been pretty much impossible, right? That is one of the problems here. It's a worship issue, but Jesus' quotation actually tells us more of what the problem is. If you look back at verse 17... He quotes Isaiah 56, 7. He says, My house shall be called a house of prayer. But Mark is the only gospel author who includes this part from Isaiah 56, 7. It's a house of prayer for all the nations. It's for all the nations. So it's not just worship per se that's being interrupted. It's that mission was being interrupted too. Because this was the only place that Gentiles could come to pray and to worship. So it was distracting them above all else in this place. And so these business practices were not just interrupting worship, they were actually interrupting the mission of God itself. And so what Jesus is saying with this quote is that Israel, on a larger scale, had failed in their mission to be a light to the Gentiles. And that's, that's a huge deal that might not seem like a huge deal to us. But this traces all the way back to Israel's identity as children of Abraham. 
Because God in Genesis 12 had called Israel to be a people that was going to bless the nations. It was going to be through Abraham's seed that God was going to bless the world and fix what was broken in the world. It was going to be through Israel. And so that this great phrase that, continue, that we continue to say over and over again is that Israel was, to be, was blessed in order to be a blessing. He had chosen Israel and blessed Israel with the plan of blessing the whole world through Israel. And at this point, they have failed. The other nations no longer are able to see who God is or what He's like. They're not any longer seeing what worship and life with God is supposed to be. And that is why Jesus is judging the temple. Israel has failed. And rather than using this law to show forth who God is... They were setting up these barriers in order to despise and hate the Gentiles. They were boasting in their identity, in their ethnicity, and they had forgotten that they were blessed in order to be a blessing. And again, the same temptation is here for us. And this is a tough one. We also have been blessed in order to be a blessing. This might make you a little uncomfortable, but think about this. Your salvation was never meant to be selfishly enjoyed. Because the moment a person puts her faith in Jesus, she immediately becomes a part of God's mission in the world. That is actually at the core of the identity of the church. That is what the church is. People have said the church is at the heart a missional community. Mission is at the heart of the church. The thing is, of course... It's a lot easier to not be outward facing. It's a lot easier to keep certain people out, to keep the people out that make you feel uncomfortable, the people that you don't like, the people that make you feel awkward, the people that annoy you. It's easy for us to hang out with people that are easy to be with, that are like us, that we know and that we love. And we don't want to risk upsetting this great thing that we have going. And of course, if we're honest with ourselves, this hits me pretty hard because I think we're actually facing this right now as we talk about a new campus, a new plant. We have a great thing going right here. And there are times in the conversation about this plant and the planning and preparation where we, me included, have thought, man, this would be a whole lot easier if we stayed in this same church and kind of rode off into the sunset together. Let's all stay here. Let's not leave. We've got a great thing going. God has blessed us significantly. We have rich relationships with one another. Let's not mess this thing up. That is a real temptation for all of us, whether you're thinking about going or staying. The problem, though, is that that is not who we are. We are a missional family that has been blessed in order to be a blessing. And so what God has called us to, as uncomfortable as this might make us, He has called us to embody and to extend the message of the gospel, not just to those right here, but to the whole of our city and even beyond that, to the ends of the earth. He calls us to this so that we would never separate our worship from mission. We are a missional family. And so through Jesus' judgment of Israel, he warns us 
of the danger of worship that is fruitless and missionless. And that hits us hard. But there's this third warning that Jesus gives to Israel. And this is actually the most important of the three. So thirdly and finally, Jesus restores our worship of God by warning us of the danger of worship without Jesus. Look at verse 18. Notice the response here. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. So the the leaders here are upset, and it's not just because he temporarily interrupted this thing they had going at the temple. They're upset because they understand that Jesus is making a much bigger claim than what his actions at first indicate. And this is actually where we see the point of this passage. The reason that Jesus can warn us like he does in this passage and to pronounce judgment of the old temple is because Jesus is now the true temple. He is replacing this old temple. This is why, we, why he alone can, worship, can restore us to worship of God. Because Jesus is the new temple, the true temple. Temple. And Mark doesn't record Jesus saying this explicitly here. But in Mark 14, 58, this is where Jesus is standing before the council. He's about to be condemned and crucified. He's accused of saying this I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. And he does say something similar to that in John 2. John records that. And then John adds, He was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus is now the true temple, and this is why the rejection of Jesus by the chief priests and scribes is so serious. Because they have totally missed the point as to who Jesus is and what he's come to do. They've missed the one to whom the temple was always pointing, because this is the new place where God's special presence is going to dwell, and that place is Jesus himself. And what that means for us is that there is no real worship apart from Jesus. And there are two reasons for this. One is that Jesus is now the place of God's presence. The old temple is gone, it's done away with, and God's presence now dwells with his people. He dwells in and with his people. And you've got these kind of... uh, These odd verses at the end of this passage in uh, 22 through 25. And I don't fully understand what's happening here. uh, Matthew records these verses about prayer in the Sermon on the Mount. But what's likely happening here, at least what's a possibility of what's happening here, is that Jesus is saying that God is now going to dwell in the faithful, praying community of his people. This is now where the presence of God is to be found, in and among his people. And this is what Paul says as well. He says that you individually are a temple for the Holy Spirit, and we as a body are the new temple, because Jesus by his Spirit dwells among us. This is the place of God's presence. But there's another reason that there's no real worship apart from Jesus And it's that he is now the place of ultimate sacrifice. So at some point, when Jesus does all of this, sacrifices stop, right? Commentators point this out. The sales have stopped. He tells people, you can't even walk across this temple anymore. Sacrifices cease for a moment. But what that does, though, is it points to a time where sacrifices in the temple are going to stop permanently. And the reason for that is that Jesus would, on Good Friday, 
offer himself up as the once for all ultimate Passover lamb. The one who would for the first time tear this curtain that divided the Gentiles from the holiest of holies. Where everybody who puts their faith in Jesus can then enter into this place and experience the cleansing that this Passover lamb alone can provide. And so what Jesus does is he restores our worship by his death. And so whatever conviction you feel about how right now your life feels like a contradiction, that your life isn't producing the fruit that you'd hope, or that you do really wish that we could keep certain people out, I'd invite you to be open and honest about those things because you can, because this Jesus has died in order to forgive you for that. He is the ultimate sacrifice and he delights in forgiving you for that. This forgiveness is real. He offers that to you. And you might even be here visiting this morning. This is a time of year, again, where where you might begin coming to church and that's not a regular practice for you. If you have never trusted in Jesus, if you've never looked to him and asked him to forgive you for those ways, now is a wonderful time to do that. All that he asks, all that he requires of us is that that we would turn to him, whether for the first time or the hundredth time, and acknowledge to him that we need grace. This is Jesus, the true temple, the ultimate Passover lamb, who offers himself to us this morning. Will you receive him? He offers himself to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you sent your son Jesus to warn us in grace and to be to us the ultimate sacrifice, the one in whom we find forgiveness and the one in whom we now enjoy your full, favorable presence towards us. May we rejoice in that and delight in that. And we pray through Christ. Amen.